feels to me like civil litigation has become a bit of a game of snakes and ladders. We obviously all professionally have an obligation not to take on something we don't feel ourselves competent to deal with. A nice combination is a family solicitor bringing in a little bit of Chancery Bar expertise. Charlotte and Bree, welcome to the Resolution podcast. Uh, I'm really excited, given your credentials, to have you both here. Obviously, there is no one better to make this topic that is frankly both terrifying and sometimes a little dull, accessible and interesting to us family lawyers. And also, full disclosures for for our listeners, Charlotte's a good friend of mine, having previously been in Chambers together. So I'm super excited that she's she's here to explain this to us. Thank you, Anita. I think you've just demonstrated that family law is plainly very exciting compared to property law, because I thought this was an interesting and exciting area. Or maybe I'm just a property geek. I think that sort of brings me to my first question, which is when when should and when shouldn't family lawyers be dealing with trusts of land and and and, and proprietary estoppel type cases? Because I think people are very unsure does and doesn't fall in in our remit. I don't know what Charlotte thinks. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. We obviously all professionally have an obligation not to take on something we don't feel ourselves competent to deal with and I would say obviously these things can end up in family courts or in chancery business and property courts and that can have a huge impact on on what is your comfort zone and what feels like an alien territory or not so that would be one factor if it's as an intervener in a divorce that would be another factor that would mean it seems to me it would be more likely to be comfortable for a higher proportion of family practitioners than chancery practitioners. If there's any question of Children Act claims as well, and there may be particular issues that become relevant in terms of the history feeding into what this family's agreements were that is more of a family territory if it's involving children and and the like. But obviously, if it's hard property principles and the knot that judges get themselves into by using the wrong language in this area of practice, then you may think not. don't know, Charlotte, what do you think? I do quite a, I sort of keep a bit of a foot in both, both camps still. So I do quite a lot of intervener work. And that seems to be a nice combination is a family solicitor, then perhaps bringing in a little bit of chancery bar expertise in the intervener context so I would usually typically act for the intervener in an intervener scenario so that seems to work quite well because then you've got the family um, understanding of the family procedure rules etc. From the chancery and civil side of things I would say that I don't know if Bree would share this view but it feels to me like civil litigation has become a bit of a sort of game of snakes and ladders there are we'll, we'll talk to you a bit about that hopefully and hopefully take um or at least flag some of the bear traps for you a bit but in circumstances where the CPR has become quite prescriptive there are quite a lot of things that you need to be aware of and know when you've got to do them and consequences if you don't get those things right I think if you are off in the business and property um, world, off in the um, chancery division, 
perhaps that's the point at which maybe a civil litigator is going to be a safe pair of hands to do that sort of work. Yes, I think it's always the case if you're not in your natural environment, then it's much easier to miss things, to approach something and and what you produce is incomplete because you don't understand the full depth of it. And as Charlotte says, so far as CPR is concerned these days, the consequences are pretty harsh or potentially for your clients. That's helpful. Um, And um, I think we're all going to be pleased to be uh, warned of the bear traps in the CPR shortly. (laughs) They catch a lot of civil practitioners out. So so the classic situation for us family lawyers, which we which we really live in dread of, is the usually a woman coming into the office. um, They've been in a really long relationship. They've had various children in that relationship who are either grown up or almost grown up, which is taking the case away from from looking at Schedule 1 awards. And they come in and they say to us, well, what what am I going to get on separation? Um, And, you know, sometimes you, you even hear them say things like common law spouse or common law wife. We were wondering if you could really take us through right from the start what are the first steps that that we should do in that situation what are the first questions um, that we should ask ourselves in respect of the evidence in order to to analyze the case let's just start there Anita with the scenario that you've described your 20-year relationship that immediately means that we have to think about really quite a lengthy and potentially quite complex evidential picture. If we're looking at a relationship of that sort of duration, we're potentially looking at unpacking 20 years of discussions, 20 years of dealings with property, you know, the the lapses in memory that can happen over that sort of period of time. You might have a situation, for example, where you've had successive property purchases. So you may have to trace things back and look at the ownership of the first property and then how that's going to trace through further properties that have been purchased later down the line. My experience is there's two types of clients that we have in this area. The first that keep every single scrap of paper and the other ones that are like me and keep practically nothing. So sometimes also we have to deploy a bit of lateral thinking in terms of thinking about how are we going to build the evidential picture here if we don't have that sort of receipt keeping type of client. So to try and help your listeners a bit with this task, Brie and I have put together a bit of a crib sheet that hopefully will guide you through the process of gathering instructions and thinking about the framework of these sorts of claims. Assume that your listeners are going to be familiar with the the case law here and key principles that apply. So I I don't think we'll talk through, unless you want us to, talk through the detail of the cases here. But the critical thing really is that we've got to think about getting our case preparation right from the outset. What we want to be able to do is kick off with a really punchy, robust letter before action, but also make sure that we're giving realistic advice to the clients and make sure that the proceedings get off on the right footing if it's going to come to that point in time. And I personally would find that it's not uncommon when things reach my desk at the point where perhaps something comes to me and I'm asked for advice to find that actually there are quite a lot of gaps in the picture. Uh, I often 
find myself suggesting that we have a conference instead of me giving written advice so that we can tease out that process of, of gathering all the information. So hopefully the crib sheet that we've put together will, will help a bit here. And I'll just draw out some of the points to think about. Now, of course, in the cohabitation context, as you will both know and your listeners will know, we're here in the territory of constructive trusts. And the focus is about searching for what the common intention of the parties was. And that's not about secretly what they might have thought or their subjective intentions, but really about looking for words and conduct from which we can find objectively what were the party's intentions. The very first thing before you get your client through the door, before you start having conversations about who did what and who said what and who spent money on repairs or whatever, the starting point has got to be to establish well what do the title documents say and establish do we have if we've got a joint name case do we in fact already have an express declaration of trust that's absolutely critical so step number one is going to be usually making inquiries with the land registry vast majority of cases these days will involve registered land and this may seem like the most obvious thing to two very um, experienced uh, lawyers, but it's missed in the surprising number of cases. And it's not just missed by family lawyers, it's missed by some of the civil lawyers that instruct me. But it's not just a question of going and looking at what the title says at the land registry, whether it's a joint name case or a sole name case. But you've also got to track down a copy of the TR1 usually, particularly in a sole name case. And that's because... You want to look precisely what is said in the TR1 and have a look at box 10 of the TR1. It's a tick box. It's very simple. But that is actually where you should find, in, in most modern cases, you will, should find there is an express declaration of trust. It's as simple as ticking a box to say we hold as joint tenants or ticking a box to say that we hold as tenants in common. Now, if you find that you've got a joint name case and you've got TR1 and those boxes have been ticked, you're having a totally different conversation with your client in terms of what's going to be left to argue about, because in those circumstances, you have probably got a binding express declaration of trust. So that's inquiry number one. What did the title document say? Once you've done that, the next obvious source of documentary evidence is going to be the conveyancing file, usually. You might find that there's a file that's held by a mortgage advisor as well. That might be something you want to have a look at. The sorts of information, you need to bear in mind, what is it that we're looking for in this file? And usually you've got to wade through pages and pages of searches and inquiries and things like that. But what we're really trying to find here is information about why the property was being acquired as it was. Sometimes we find there's a particular reason why it was being acquired in one party's name rather than another. Recent case of mine, it's because the man was self-employed and there just hadn't been time to get all of his accounts together. So property was purchased in the woman's name. So you're looking for that sort of information. You're looking to see if the file has got information about who contributed what. Are there attendance notes are there letters of advice about ownership and about the shares that the parties have got? And I think the other point that I would make about this, and this is an issue that, that Brie and I have, have recently been thinking about quite a lot, is it's not just about the information that you can find in a file like this, but it's also about thinking about, well, what's the value of this information? What's the source of this information? What weight can we give to this information? So we also want to think about, well, who was it that liaised with the solicitors here? Did both parties engage with this process? Was this a shared understanding, the information that's being relayed to the conveyancing solicitors? And would they necessarily have been sharing the same agenda at this point in, 
in time might might whomever is conveying this information you know have some different sort of agenda going on we do sometimes see excuse type cases where a party is given an excuse as to why somebody else shouldn't go on the title so bearing all of those sorts of things um, in mind as we go through that file hopefully then once you've done that you will have got to grips with the key body in terms of your documentary evidence that's going to be your best evidence, at least at the point at which the property was acquired as to what was going on. And then your next consideration is going to be, well, well, why was it acquired that way? And your client might be able to fill in the picture there, give you a bit more detail in terms of the context of the purchase. Is this purely a domestic purchase? That can make a difference rather than an investment property might be a different sort of analysis there so that's something you want to establish too and then we're into well what was discussed what were the discussions between the parties I think uh, this is a, a dictum that um, will be firmly embedded in Bree's memory having said it an awful lot recently but in the constructive trust context we're dealing with express discussions and and the the phrase from Lloyd's Bank and Rossett is however imperfectly remembered however imprecise their terms might have been, because we recognise in this area that two people in a romantic relationship perhaps aren't going to be talking about the nitty-gritty of trusts law in quite the way that Brie and I might discuss it. So what was said... And have no understanding. Yeah, yes. A lot of what, how what they say fits into or doesn't fit into boxes. Yeah, exactly. So what was said... By whom? Were these discussions really about owning a property together? Or are they just about making a home together? Is there anybody that can corroborate accounts of discussions? Are there any witnesses? Were there text messages, emails? All of that sort of information. And we also want to think about not just at the point of purchase what was being discussed, but also discussions that have come later down the line. Usually there are usually critical junctures. There might be a point where one party starts contributing to the mortgage, for example, or perhaps there are works that are done to the property. What was being said? What was being discussed at those points in time? What did the client believe to be the position? Whilst we're not ultimately, this isn't an area of law that turns on subjective intentions. Obviously, that's an important question to ask. And also, we have to look at the financial picture because the critical ingredient that generates a constructive trust where you've had just oral discussions and nothing committed to writing is is detrimental reliance. And generally, not always, it's not always going to be financial conduct or not only financial conduct, but financial conduct is obviously really, really important um, in this area. So you're going to be looking at who was paying what for mortgage contributions, but not just mortgage contributions, but the bigger picture of how the household economy was run, how were the how was the household expenditure shared? And don't forget, not just to think about the finances, but think about other sorts of things that somebody might have done, sort of non-financial detriment. So it might be something like giving up secure accommodation elsewhere. Or in, you know, in the right sort of case, it could be something like coming in to be a carer for somebody or labour on a property or something of that nature. But the, the critical question with that sort of conduct is why did they do it? Did they do it because there was an understanding that they had an interest in the property or was this just conduct something that they were going to do anyway for unconnected reasons? That's often the difficult feature when it comes to family law and people coming to family law offices because 
you know, in that scenario, the woman might have given up work and dedicated 20 years caring for the children. And on, on what basis would have they made those sacrifices? Is Yeah. Is and very often people are very reluctant to say, well, actually, there was a cost benefit analysis going on in my head that not that clients would use that language, but they like they feel uncomfortable to admit <laughs> that actually, no, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't had that confidence or the, that assurance that I was going to get this out of it. And I think it's quite important when talking to clients in this space to really do some unpacking for them so that they understand what the way they may talk about things actually means. Yeah. So, I mean, Charlotte used the example of the difference between as I often explain it to my clients, house as an asset and your home. Mm. Um, and actually getting clients to understand when you're asking them whether that conversation was about the asset and the value and the home or just the asset and the value or just the home. And it might be both and it might be either. So it's very important to find ways talking to clients in this area where they can yeah, because they didn't think they'd have to think about any of this stuff and they didn't think they were going to be going into court over this stuff. And so they're having to think back and unpack just what was going on in their heads. And as Charlotte said, whilst we as um, civil practitioners, it's normally, oh, it's all, you know, it's objective. It, it's what's understood the reasonable bystander would understand hearing the conversations, seeing how they acted. But actually a starting point in terms of the evidence is what they thought. That's self-serving. It is limited, but it is a fundamental starting point. And you do need to get to what they thought because, and I've certainly had it happen, if it doesn't actually come out until they're in the witness box, it can blow the case. If no one's dug down to find out what they really thought was going on and what their attitude really was to what they were putting in and expecting to get out can unpack the case fairly rapidly if you haven't bottomed that out. The fact they're coming in to to see a lawyer at the end of it, certainly at the end of it means they're they're thinking there was something there. But the question, as you're telling us, is 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 what's happened before the <laughs> separation in respect Indeed, of their when they all thought it was all okay. And that, that's why the documents are so important in these cases, aren't they? However sparse they might be, they sort of are the scaffolding around which you need to build everything, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and they can be the platforms that justify your case. Or I think, Charlotte, earlier when we were all talking, <laughs> used snakes and ladders as an as a indicator. So I'm going to say the ladder down, down which you can find yourself falling if you haven't got an explain for, explanation for each rung as you try and climb up it. Charlotte mentioned the importance of the conveyancing file and and also the land registry documents and the TR1. Uh, perhaps actually you could talk to us a bit about when the TR1 came in because it was it was quite a sea change wasn't it? And it, is, is the TR... Is the TL1 effectively definitive now? Is it is it almost impossible to go behind it? I can't remember the exact dates, but I think we went through... It's about 1996, 1997, something like that. Well, we went through from not having the TR1 as we know it to having a TR1 where it was optional to complete the declaration of trust. 
to now where you have to put something in that box. If there is a TL1 with the box completed, and don't assume there will be, because if it's old enough, it may not be, and it has been registered, (laughs) then you have a serious hill to climb. It's not impossible to go behind it. And you might be able, and I'll come back to this, to go behind it, as it were, as at the time it was entered into by, by a challenge that's directed at that point in time, or there may be subsequent agreements and events that allow you to say, well, that's now out of date. That's no longer the position. Um, and I'll come back to that. But so far as the TR1 itself, you also want to look and see that it's actually been completed properly. <laughs> yeah, that it's been properly executed. And obviously there are quite a lot of fraud cases involving property and the land registry is on a constant battle to introduce extra checks and balances to avoid that but it is something that happens an awful lot cases i don't know if you've encountered this this brie but i've had this crop up where the conveyancing solicitor has sort of made that the the clients have returned the tr1 without having put anything in the box and the conveyancing solicitor has formed their own view about what should go go in the box and 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 slotted slotted that in you know so it is worth probing a bit because if that's what's happened well that's that isn't the you've you've got possibly some um firmer ground in terms of saying well what's in the box isn't what should bind these parties here because it's absolutely what was on the piece of paper that they signed so for me you start with the tr1 and the register then you go to the conveyance fi- conveyancing file to see whether you've got an at the time challenge which might be, as Charlotte says, it might be that you can challenge it at the time because it was actually a forgery. It might be because a solicitor who didn't have proper authority to act for both parties completed the document. (laughs) Uh, It can be very interesting to look at the conveyancing files and see who letters were being sent to and where they were actually being sent, who's seeming to respond to them and sometimes you find that there's you know one of two purchases and one has been nowhere near anything to do with the file has signed a TR1 but if that wasn't completed and the solicitor never got authority from that person in in any sense other than the authority that would be drawn from the fact they signed a document that was sent to the solicitor. You may then be able to attack from that point of view. And that that's talking about attacking what the ownership is between the parties to the transaction or the, the individuals not um, unlikely to help you in terms of a mortgage company and the like, but that's a whole other level and that's a whole other conversation podcast, I imagine. And that might well be some way where you say, mm, no, want a chancery person at that point. <laughs> Yes, you need to be looking to see whether there's anything in terms of the at the time challenges that allow you to say not authorized, not executed properly, a mistake. So I've certainly seen a file where it was quite clear on the file that the parties had said they wanted to be tenants in common and the solicitor had completed it as joint tenants. So you can have all sorts of things when you dig through before you even get into the more traditional ones in these areas, such as undue influence, uh, misrepresentation, etc. So absolutely that. But I also mentioned you may have a evidence of subsequent events, which mean you're able to say, 
yes, there's a TR1 with an express declaration of trust. And at that point in time, that was their interests. But there's been a subsequent sequence of events that gives rise to a proprietary estoppel that changes those interests. And that can quite often happen when there are significant life events. So it may be that a couple have separated. They have renegotiated about their assets between themselves. They've dealt, and this is one of several assets, they've dealt with those assets, but made no change so far as the registered title is concerned. So then you would be looking to see whether you had the necessary elements to establish a later proprietary estoppel. Um, And I've certainly had a number of those where there have been couples that have several properties and they have rearranged that portfolio between themselves, but not necessarily actually regularized that. And, you know, provided you can show that that's become fixed in relation to some assets, then you can use that to come forward. Or that could be about provision being made for other family members. It can be about other family members and friends investing in in a property, all sorts of arrangements that that can come about. So it's worth looking across the timeline for significant, I guess it's significant family events or significant events affecting the property are the times it's likely that that will have happened if it has. So when there's been extensions and things like that. If you're looking over the timeline and you're looking to see if there's been a change after the express declaration, would you need documentary evidence and corroborative evidence in order to support that sort of shift? From a legal point of view, by definition, I'm talking about situations where it's not been formally documented. It is obviously hugely helpful. If you have documents that show that this couple that had a portfolio of three properties then treated one of these properties as belonging to one of them and it was subsequently sold and they had the whole benefit from it, or that there were changes formally made in relation to that property at some point. So, yes, if you can find documentation that shows the sort of the other bits of the agreement. So you're saying property one, nothing was formally changed, but we did negotiate a new arrangement. We implemented that in other respects. And if you've got documentation to show that implementation or the detriment, so the expenditure of money and the like, then obviously that is going to help significantly in giving that account of a subsequent arrangement. The classic I am thinking of, which I think we often hear as family lawyers, is when the property is in the name of one partner and then they go on to have children and the other partner comes in and says, well, at that point they were saying it would be ours. But then obviously there often isn't any documentation to verify that. And and that on its own is not going to be enough to be a proprietary estoppel. I'm, I, as I say, I'm talking about situations where they have redistributed assets and you can show that being implemented or where there has been significant investment mm-hmm. in a property. Now, I'm not saying it has to be financial. Obviously, we know that proprietary estoppel can operate with non-financial, but when you've got a pre-existing relationship, particularly if they've both already got an interest in it, Aside from converting from a joint tenancy to a tenancy in common, it's quite hard to convincingly evidence that 
without documentation and without it being based on some sort of financial rearrangement or some some sort of financial events that don't fit with both the original arrangement and the practicalities of life. You know, the, the fact that one was no longer working then will mean that things change around the mortgage and that's unlikely to be seen as being an event which represents a changing of their asset ownership as opposed to their domestic arrangement. Yes, it's all, it's all about uh, us needing to establish where you're having a conversation about the home or about the asset. And if we think in, in those sorts of terms, it becomes a lot clearer, I think. And I think, Anita, if you have in mind the sort of scenario where you've got a pre-existing a property that was owned in the sole name of one of the partners, and then you have got um, it being said that later down the line, perhaps it's a relationship that's started after that property was acquired. If you look at the train of the, the case law, I, I think you can make the general observation that it is much harder to successfully establish a constructive trust or a proprietary estoppel in those sorts of circumstances, particularly unless you can produce some quite compelling evidence that there have been expressed discussions. But generally on the basis of conduct alone in those sorts of cases, particularly if it's the sort of conduct that you're talking about there, giving up work for, you know, caring for a family or whatever, that is unlikely to be evidence from which you can say, yes, we can deduce that there was an intention that somebody was to acquire an interest in the property. To give an example of the flip side, case of Baxter, which I did, was where property was acquired in joint names. It was his right to buy. He shared that with her at acquisition and it was purchased in joint names. And subsequently, it was put into her sole name at a point where they were still together. They were needing to move to a different area of the country to look after his children from a previous relationship and for some reason decided it was a good idea to have the property in her sole name while he was the custodial parent and needing to have social housing in the new area. And we nevertheless persuaded the court that there was, the court accepted on the evidence that there was an express agreement that this change to the legal title was not changing their interests, so that actually they were staying static, despite the fact that they actually did do the formalities. So it's the sort of flip side. The court concluded that there was a trust that she was holding it on trust for the two of them. Charlotte, you flagged at the beginning that there are bear traps that solicitors of all types fall into, but perhaps most commonly those who are less familiar with these sorts of cases. What, what in particular did you have in mind? I'll just pick up a ham, handful of things that I see quite commonly. These are errors that I, I see fairly frequently in my travels. Um, and I think Bree will probably pick up some of the more nuanced, nitty gritty bits of the CPR. But in terms of common errors, I'd probably say that the number one is issuing a part eight claim instead of a part seven claim. Hopefully everybody's familiar with this, but just to refresh memories, part eight should really just be reserved for cases where there's no substantial dispute of fact. So that immediately means not this sort of case that we're talking about, where we're relying on express discussions and all of these complicated issues about who did what. That's good. That should be if you're looking to um, bring a claim to establish an interest in property or to argue that shares are different, how the title is held, that should be by way of part seven claim. So part eight 
really ought to be reserved for cases where there's no dispute about the beneficial ownership, but you've got issues perhaps such as claiming an order for sale or um, perhaps equitable accounting issues, occupation rents, that kind of thing. So that would be one of the common things I would say. The other common error is, and perhaps we might have fallen into this trap a little bit in terms of outlining the sorts of things that you need to take instructions about. Don't forget those sorts of issues that sit around the periphery, the satellite issues, those sorts of things that I just mentioned. You know, the client's objectives in terms of achieving an order for sale, making sure that you're you're covering all the evidence that needs to be gathered to deal with that, all the consequential sorts of issues such as accounts, occupation rents, etc. I, I find that it's not uncommon that those points are not necessarily covered off as fully as they should be perhaps in in witness statements and connected to that possibly because everybody's eyes have been on the main prize sometimes the need for expert evidence is overlooked so you might have you might want to have expert evidence on matters for example if you've got if your claim is founded upon saying well I've contributed to significant improvement works you might want to bring forward expert evidence about what value that's added to the property because that could be important not just in terms of showing actually this is a really um, really significant contribution that should found a claim to a shown property but it also may go to quantification or it might be relevant to things like to the accounting side of things if it's works that have been done post separation So that might be an issue that you want to have some expert advice um, and expert opinion evidence about. And occupation rent claims often find that that's completely forgotten about the need to evidence what the rental value of the property is. Sometimes you can get away with sort of fudging it a bit with with Zoopla type evidence, but really you should have evidence from a surveyor who can say this is what the market rent for the property is. And those, if we're talking about big properties, those can be very high value claims. So don't forget about, about those sorts of things probably be my, my main message there. Things for families to be thinking about, I guess, are cost budgeting. That's something that you have to do. It's a hideous form, which it I think it took most of us quite a long time to start to be able to navigate our way around and sometimes the electronic versions go wacky just to make life really difficult that calls for and at least it guides you through detailed cost budgeting for the whole of the case that you have to do and be careful of the the timelines 21 days before the first cmc unless there's another order because if you don't do it and you don't manage to get any relief from sanctions for the failure to do it, then you'll be limited essentially to the court fees and nothing else. But also, assuming you do it, that's then put forward cost budgets that you can be limited to. I suppose my sort of key tips for understanding is costs that have already been incurred, you just put in what's already been incurred. And in approving the budget or agreeing the budget, those don't get messed with. They're incurred. If they're going to be challenged, that's a matter for detailed assessment later. In terms of the estimated costs, you seek to agree that between the parties. The reality is very many judges will not mess with it if the parties have agreed. And of course, both parties probably have an interest in making sure that those estimates are ones that allow the case to go forward. And so as a sort of driving down costs exercise, many would raise a question mark as to whether it really does that. But certainly what you need to be doing is putting in realistic, comfortable, not 
oh, I can't say it's going to cost that much. Don't do that. <laughs> because if you put in cost estimates and then agree them or the court approves them and then you want to say actually there's something else that we had didn't take account of or it's all costing a lot more you then have to persuade the court to allow you to change the budget or else you're going to be pretty well stuck with what's in your budget so don't don't go all coy about the, the budget figures and you know it's sensible to cooperate disclosure pilot I'll mention so there's been an increasing drive on the civil side in the CPR to actually make us be a little bit more sophisticated about disclosure in the sense of thinking about whether you really need to do the full anything that might be relevant that helps your case or opens up problem for your case etc etc so there is now a shopping list of I think it's A to E uh, of different levels or depths of disclosure it is all done by reference to issues in the case. So it's not anything that might impact on the case in any way. You can have a disclosure order that says on this issue and this issue, you do what we would all recognise as old-fashioned disclosure, whereas on this issue, you just disclose what you're relying on. So that's trying to drive down the amount of material that's being disclosed. You will have huge variation in terms of the willingness of judges really to get down and dirty in that. There is a disclosure questionnaire that forms a basis for that. So you put in issues, you put against the issues, what you're saying should be the appropriate level of disclosure. And that flushes out where there are differences between the parties. And ultimately, at a CMC, the court will decide if you can't agree between you. Usually, if you can agree, the court will be only too happy not to get too dug into it unless it's going to be a very high volume documentation case. A couple of other points. If you've agreed something in a bundle, I don't know if it's the same in family, but you, if you've agreed it's in there, it's not only treated as being a genuine document, but also one that evidences what it appears to evidence. So you need to be very careful if there are documents that are questionable in a case, you first, if you want to question its authenticity, uh, you need, I think it's before you serve witness statements, certainly at a fairly early stage, to serve a formal notice that raises a question mark over the authenticity of the document, uh, because you're treated as accepting everything that's disclosed as authentic otherwise. I cannot tell you how few solicitors and barristers actually do that. It's CPR 3219. Wow, people with your knowledge of the CPR, <laughs> if you serve one of those notices where there's a question document, because most people don't. Uh, and if someone else is trying to question a document and they haven't served one, you can make their life difficult by pointing out that they haven't and they're not entitled to, and they then have to apply for relief. Basically, if there is something that the CPR requires you to do and you haven't done it, then it is very likely there's a sanction. Sometimes it's explicit what the sanction is, either in the order or in the rules. Sometimes it's simply the fact that you, in order to do something, have to have done this. and Therefore, you can't do the thing because you haven't complied. If you're in breach, whether it's an order or within the CPR itself, you've then got to go through the hurdles that the Denton test has imposed of the court saying, is this a serious, significant non-compliance? If it is, why 
did the breach happen? So that's about the sort of intention, the cause, where that came from, and the fact it was your solicitor rather than you, the party, is not going to be an excuse because that's why solicitors have insurance and that's why barristers have insurance. And then point three is evaluating all the circumstances, which is where the point about the impact of the breach on each party. So what, what's the effect of the relief from sanctions being given? What's the effect of the sanction taking effect for the parties and also for the case and the court? You have to make an application for relief. You have to put in a witness statement. The evidence is all the things you want to rely on. And of course, that runs up lots more costs. So I think that's probably enough to scare people, <laughs> which isn't the intention. Uh, it is all there in writing in the white book, which is too big. But there we go. Isn't it always the case that when people set out to do reforms to make things streamlined and straightforward and certain, they achieve the exact opposite? <laughs> well, it, it speaks volumes that the um, family court practice in the red book is is just the one volume, whereas the white book is always two, isn't it? Mostly you only need volume one, if that's any comfort. The statutes by and large are in volume two. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that is uh, any comfort <laughs> after those. Mornings. I tried, Anita, I tried. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, okay, um, and, and what about preparing witness statements? Because I understand that even that is, is different when we're looking at these cases. Yes, and you may find that that is in the pipeline for family practitioners as well. I mean, firstly, in terms of like your factual substance, if you follow our handy crib sheets, hopefully you'll be well on the way to gathering all of the evidence that you need. But the civil courts really have got fed up of what what are described as being overly lawyered witness statements, you know, the ones that have a line in them that say, I did X, Y, Z in detrimental reliance upon the assurances that I was given. You know, the courts have, are fed up with this kind of stuff. They're fed up with statements that have got lots of argument in them or lots of comments on, on things that the witness themselves can't actually speak to and really in the civil courts trying to stamp some of that out but the reason why I say you need to be aware of that because it might be coming down the pipeline is because you probably know this but the president of family division recently issued issued a memo 10th of November setting out really the substance of what has now been introduced in the business and property courts which is PD 57AC but setting out for family practitioners the broad gist of what, what's come down the pipeline now for the business and property courts and telling you that you all need to start complying with this. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a practice direction like, like we have. So unfortunately, despite the fact that there were lots of warnings in cases with judges commenting on these sorts of things and statements being struck out and things like that and cost sanctions and so on, nobody paid much heed to that. And the result of that is that we've, we've now got this, this new, new practice direction. In a sense, it is telling us to do what we should have been doing anyway. And it's about trimming out all of that argument and commentary and, and that sort of stuff and really trying to pare witness statements down to just the witnesses' own factual evidence that they can give about what they saw, what they discussed, what they were thinking at the, at the relevant point in time. 
And but it's quite strict, the practice direction. There are specific things that you're supposed to do. It's prescriptive in terms of the way that you conduct your interview with your with your client. You've got to sign the client's got to sign a certificate confirming that the purpose of the witness statement has been explained to them. The legal um, representative has got to sign a statement of compliance confirming that they've com- complied with all of this. So it, it is quite prescriptive, something that you need to be aware of and something that may well be coming your way. And something also that I think is probably going to change the way that we prepare for trial a bit as well, because there is quite a lot of work that's done in a witness statement in terms of framing the claim, in terms of giving the sort of broader sense of of the narrative, which is a story that still needs to be told to the trial judge. But we're going to have to try and do that in different ways. So I think we'll probably make more use of things like chronologies to give that kind of narrative overview um, and probably start having a bit more of an old fashioned oral opening, perhaps, or or more of that work being done in skeleton arguments, less of it happening in witness statements. I mean, some witness statements, when you look at them, if you trim out everything that is argument and everything that is comment on other stuff that the witness can't actually personally give evidence about you're not left with very much at the end of the day in this kind of work it really sort of lends itself you know i can i I can understand to to argument creeping into witness statements to be clear though this is about witness statements for trial yeah witness statements in support of applications is it's fine to put in. Court still doesn't want you putting loads of submissions in there and quoting great great rafts of documents, but inevitably it does go beyond things that are in the client in the witness's own knowledge. There's there's another subset of um, these sorts of cases that we come across a lot where the issue isn't so much to do with the proportions in which a property is owned. It's more to do with what you might call liquidity or what you might call bringing the property owning relationship to an end. So the people who know perfectly well that they own a property 50-50, but the other party refuses to move out or they uh, refuse to um, apply for a mortgage so that they can buy your client out or whatever it might be, those sorts of, of variations on a theme where you're really looking at how quickly and effectively to, to, to bring about a resolution in those cases. Any, any tips on that sort of thing? I don't know what Charlotte will think about this, but it seems to me a difference doing it in, in the context of um, civil proceedings is in terms of proceedings, you sort of have no choice but to go nuclear. You have to make an application for an order for sale. Then there are nuances in how you're framing that and the detail of what you say it should be. But for instance, you referenced you know, um, someone getting a mortgage to buy out, you can't apply for that. <laughs> you can only apply uh, and the court can only order an order for sale and then conditions and terms related to how that's actually going to happen. Sometimes you're not actually contemplating a sale, but <laughs> what you need to do is apply for that so as to, to force a hand and force someone to get on with it, which is what I mean by going nuclear. And the sort of nuances and the things to really think about and make sure you've worked out for yourself in terms of approach are multi-layered. So you will have an idea about how you think the asset or your client's share of the asset is going to be realized, whether it is as a result of 
the asset being sold and that producing a chunk of money or your client staying in the property, but actually what is the transaction that's going to achieve that? And then knowing where you want to end up, you need to be thinking about value. Is there going to be an issue over value? If so, what is the mechanism by which a value is going to be determined and at what stage? So it may be that you're in a position when applying for the order for sale to put in front of the court evidence about value so that the order for sale includes what it will be sold for or that it will be sold for not less than X, you know, the first offer received above Y. Or it may be that actually what you need to do is design an order for sale that has built into it a mechanism that will determine marketing value and then the value at which offers will be accepted. So one has to think through very carefully the stages of the transaction and think about the method, the mechanism and the output for each of those stages and work out what orders you need in place for that. So as I've said, value, evidence, timing, mechanism of determination, both in terms of if it's going on the market, what it's marketed at, and what would be accepted and therefore an ultimate sale value. The means of sale, is it going into an auction, in which case you may not need to have a mechanism for hitting on value other than the auction itself, but you probably will need to hit on a reserve, or is it going out onto the open market? The selection of the professionals to be involved, I use professionals in the widest sense, because that's both the sales agents, the estate agents, and the conveyances. How are they going to be selected? Is there agreement about that? Do we need a mechanism for getting to that? Are you putting evidence before the court and asking the court to decide that now? And then who's going to have the control over each of those processes? Are you arguing that it has to be your client in control, else this is never going to happen? Or is there sufficient cooperation between the parties where if they are if there is an order that says they're jointly instructing and the professional is identified or a method for identifying the professional in place you can be confident that it will happen and that's control about the marketing about the access to the property about anything if anything needs to be done to the property before it's going to be sold control of that and control of the conveyancing itself possession when is whoever is the occupying party going to be vacating? Has that got to happen before marketing or after? Generally, pro- properties sell better if they're occupied, but if there's, that's causing a problem, someone's likely to disrupt marketing, you need to provide for that as well. And ultimately, you do need them out at the point where the sale happens. If you have a really obstructive party, then you may from the outset, if you can persuade the court that actually nothing is going to happen if this party is given any involvement in it at all, you might actually set out in the original order that convincing, necessary convincing documents will be signed off by a district judge or a master, as the CPR, as well as in family proceedings, permits them to do in substitution. So there's a lot of detailed practicality. You can have a very, very simple order where you have parties who are realistic and going to cooperate through to extremely lengthy, detailed orders where that's not the case. I'm sure 
Anita's used to the um the, the matrimonial situation where nobody can agree anything at all and we we end up with these uh very lengthy prescriptive sort of orders perhaps just to pick up on a, a point that Bree mentioned there are no property adjustment orders in this territory that that isn't a thing that the court can can do but it is possible for the court to direct that the parties in a in a case where there are two beneficial owners that whoever is holding legal title, if it's both of them or one of them, the court does have the power to direct that the trustees are to sell to one of the the beneficiaries. So whilst the property, whilst you can't have a property adjustment order, it is possible. Usually it's the person who's going to be in occupation who's going to seek that kind of an order. There is potentially the possibility for the court to say, well, well, that person should have essentially the sort of first right of refusal on, on the property and the opportunity to to purchase it and that can be achieved but you need to have a bit of a think about how you're going to do that and you need to make sure that you've got the evidence to be able to do it how are you going to fund it value as as Brie was saying but also the practicalities of is this actually something that's going to be achievable for your client and if they both want it an option is to have sealed bids if the reality is that they are both feasible options to buy out each other um, then why have the cost of going to market and whoever puts in the best bid gets it can i um, it's a nice way of making things interesting yeah. <laughs> at the end of a heated dispute yeah, <laughs> um, only done it twice just whilst we're on um satellite type issues i think one of you mentioned earlier about the value of claims for occupation rent and that potentially being high value how often are those sorts of orders being made when you're looking at it in in terms of two cohabitees and the relationship being broken down. I've got a feeling that occupation rent is an issue that judges don't necessarily feel the greatest amount of enthusiasm about, particularly when, you know, they've been through the laborious um, fight over the the heart of the dispute and, and everybody slightly loses the will to live when it comes to occupation rent issues, I think. But they, but they do, they do run and they do get dealt with. They are more likely to have force, I think, in a situation where you don't have children in occupation. But fundamentally, it is about fairness, really. Is it fair to require the party that's in occupation to pay something to the party that's been excluded? And there are different sorts of ways of fixing it. One way of looking at it, I mean, you're probably going to have more mileage with that kind of an argument if you're a party that's been out of occupation, you've incurred the costs of having to rent somewhere, and perhaps less mileage with that kind of um, an argument if you've been able to live, I don't know, with a new partner or something like that. And then the party that's left in occupation is is the party with the children, perhaps. And then you can get into some, you know, the nitty gritty of offsetting things against who's been paying the mortgage. And that's quite often the way these sorts of things shake down, even if it's not ultimately the judge that makes that decision. It's not uncommon for parties at the end of these sorts of disputes to agree that the party that the mortgage contributions by one party simply be offset against a claim for an occupation rent. So, so whilst these these issues float about and they can be quite important, and they can particularly be important if you are wanting to resist a claim that you that that um, you should have to reimburse one party for paying the mortgage. Then bringing an occupation rent argument to offset that. Um, it's something that you're going to want to deploy, but they often come out in the wash. I would say the sort of indicators that you might have one 
that has some worth in it. If there's children, it's unlikely. If there is a lot of equity, it's more likely. If it's a long period of time, it's more likely. If the occupying party has had to expend quite a bit on the property, it's less likely. <laughs> I don't know if you've got any to add to that, Charlotte, or you take a different view of any of those. No, I agree with all of that. And it, that falls under the overarching heading of fairness, doesn't it, really? Mm-hmm. But, but those are things that you would be thinking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, the equity, the time, the expenditure and children. The two of you were recently involved in a case called Pickering and Hughes, which I had a read of this morning, and a rollicking good read it is too. <laughs> but it, it seemed to cover everything that you've just talked about in, in the course of this. I, I don't know if you want to give us a bit of an overview and, and really any sort of key lessons or takeaways from what was clearly a very challenging case. I think for me, one of the things that was very interesting about the case and what it really highlights is the significance of both family history and culture and also documents that don't fit with the with with your case in terms of the narrative by definition very often when you're relying on proprietary estoppel you're saying by definition the documents don't fit something else was agreed something else was intended and we all acted on that something else but I think it's a very good example of the range of documents that can be available so it involved a interesting family I think that's fair to say isn't it Charlotte who had some very distinctive elements of their culture which included married couples staying married and staying amicable and cooperating for decades after their marriage in the sense of being together ended. It involved the parents of the family and and we had three generations who featured as witnesses and interested parties, actual parties. The, The parents pretty well having everything in their name, apart from points where there were legal reasons why they might not wish to do that. And then it all going back into their name. Very little regard within the family for the legal ownership of things. People house swapping and uh, using company funds by reference really to their need and their interests, as in what they wanted to be doing in life, rather than their legal interests and their entitlement. So it really was a powerful case for demonstrating the need to understand the culture and and it was a family where so far as uh, certainly the two main clients we had father and one of the sons the written word was not of much interest (laughs) the son who was key claimant was dyslexic and so documents really didn't work for him and that was obviously a feature of therefore how he acted and responded it's an interesting case, as you say, Simon, for having a bit of, um, bit of, you know, the sort of, well, not quite kitchen sink, but we did fight about a grand piano and some paintings, didn't we? Did. Didn't we pretty, um, so we weren't terribly that. successful, but we were on those. <laughs> yeah, we did recover, <laughs> recover the paintings and, and the piano. But yeah, we, I mean, we had go everything in that case. We had a, um, some constructive trust, proprietary estoppel stuff going on. That, that was the heart of the claim, really. Uh, resisting a claim to an occupation rent for our, our very elderly elderly and yet in his own father. way 
rather lively client, Charles, um, who was still in occupation of one of the properties and claimant daughter was seeking an occupation rent, notwithstanding the fact that he was 92 years of age, seeking an occupation rent from him. Yeah, so we had a, we had those sorts of arguments and it was a case where because of that need, you know, we started talking about the 20 year relationship and, and that sort of inquiry. But we we went back to the 1950s, didn't we, Bree, we did. in terms of tracing through sources of funding, prior family businesses. Been, yeah, uh, the money that had gone into the various family businesses, previous properties that had been sold, how things had been been purchased. So it was it's the other end of the scale to the the sort of classic um, cohabity type scenario, perhaps, but an interesting case in terms of thinking about all those sorts of different categories of documents that you might want to look through. We spent a lot of time looking at will files and looking at the difference between external facing documents, documents that have been produced for banks and so on, versus what the understanding was um, within the family. But I think the other critical takeaway point about the case, what's interesting about the case is, despite the fact that we had fairly little um, clear documentary evidence in terms of being able to show our, our client, John, it was a dispute about property that had been constructed. We we said our client's case was at his expense, very substantial um, work that had been done to create a really very grand home and equine facilities and things like that with fairly little by way of clear documentary evidence we were successful in getting findings that 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 work had been done at our client's expense but we were unsuccessful in terms of establishing a constructive trust for him on the basis that the documentary evidence created a contradictory um, sort of picture particularly in terms of will files what mum and dad had um, done with the uh, intended in, in relation to this property in terms of the their wills, uh, but also in terms of the origin of the money. So whilst ultimately the judge agreed that legally this money had come from our client and belonged to our client because it had this sort of family character to it in this, this way that the family had sort of really quite remarkably pulled together and, and pooled their efforts over decades until they all fell out. Ultimately, that is the route that the judge took in terms of um, ultimately concluding that there hadn't been an express discussion about ownership and given the sort of family character of the money even if it had legally belonged to our client that it wasn't enough to establish a proprietary stop or constructive trust claim which does go to demonstrate how hard it can be in these sorts of cases if you don't get a finding about express discussions. And and here because it was mum and dad that were the legal owners the the fall down for us on the agreement because we had dad as one of our clients mum was dead uh, so the the parties to live parties to what we said the agreement was were all on our side uh, and giving evidence but the judge didn't accept that mum was aware so that even if there was an agreement between dad son and daughter-in-law he didn't accept them mum was aware and a lot of that was based on what was and wasn't happening in will files and the flip side of that was really we I think probably won the piano and the artwork etc because of how they were being treated in the wills yeah um so it's a powerful indicator <laughs> that you look wider than the conveyancing when you're dealing with that sort of length of history yeah there was some interesting bits of that family culture and some entertaining bits of the evidence with a 
90-year-old who was quite clear that he couldn't be expected to remember everything, which was a very fair point. Thank you. Shall we bring it to an end there? Thank you both very much. Um, Pleasure.